A special edition of the Sunday Morning Grind as the March Madness has begun with the men's basketball tournament. We are releasing the podcast a day early, so if you see episode 9 on Saturday at 7 a.m., no, it's not a mistake. It's Greg Finley with my trusted partner, Josh Taylor. Josh, we got a fun show today. We like to plan our show throughout the week, and sometimes we have to throw the rundown out, and today is one of those days. We were going to talk plenty of March Madness, and we still will do that, but we're going to be kicking off with something a little bit different first. We're going to preview the AL Central as well, and we're also going to play our favorite news headline game. But first, this big news in Pittsburgh, Juju Smith-Schuster is coming back. And there's more to this story than just the Steelers signing Juju for a year. Juju picked the Steelers for less money than going to another team. According to Adam Schefter from ESPN, the Baltimore Ravens, Philadelphia Eagles, and even the Kansas City Chiefs offered Juju a multi-year deal with more money, and Smith-Schuster selected the Steelers. He said he loved it here in Pittsburgh. He has always been a Ben Roethlisberger fan, and now it's very evident to me that Juju really does want to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. It's exciting for Steelers fans that Juju and Claypool, your one-two punch from last season, will be back. And Matt Canada now is going to be running this offense. you got Ben Roethlisberger back as your quarterback. My question is, what happens now at cornerback because Steven Nelson is gone? That is an excellent question. I keep asking myself the same thing because the Steelers have given Steven Nelson permission to pursue a trade. And there's two things you look at with this. One is the perceived benefit because if they are able to find a trade partner, they're going to save themselves eight and a half million against the cap. You hope it could turn into a late day two, maybe an early day three draft pick. But the question is, what's Steven Nelson's value on the market? What's he going to fetch you back? in a trade as far as draft picks are concerned, or they couldn't possibly find a player of need that they can get in return. Could they find themselves an offensive lineman or a linebacker or maybe a running back? I don't really know because it depends on who they're talking with, but it does, it does beg the question of one, you know, what is Steven Nelson's value? And two, how much can it help you at the current moment? It's one of those things where I wonder if they really know, you know, just how much Steven Nelson is worth. And they're going to have people probably gauge that for them because the market has been so strange in different aspects and different positions. And we just talked about Juju getting his one-year contract. It's worth $8 million, $7 million of his assigning bonus and a one-year guaranteed, one guaranteed salary of $1 million. It's not really that big of a market for wide receivers. What's the biggest wide receiver um, deal we've seen so far this offseason? Was it Curtis Samuel? Because if that's the case, the biggest market for the biggest contract for wide receiver came from the Washington football team, and they just brought in Ryan Fitzpatrick. So, what are we really to make as far as the wide receiver market right now? Going back to Stephen Nelson, I'm trying to understand just where they're trying to go right now as far as his defense. Because let's say they pull off this Stephen Nelson trade. Yes, they're going to save eight and a half million against the uh, salary cap coming up this season. But at the same time, if that happens, you're talking about. Steven Nelson, Mike Hilton, Tyson Alualu, um, uh, Vince Williams, and there's a fifth player I can't think of, Bud Dupree. That's five guys on this defense, five starters, now gone, now no longer on your defense. One of them was one of your best pass rushers. One of them was one of your best defensive backs as far as forcing turnovers. And one of them was one of your best corner guys. And if you want to make the case for Vince Williams – he might have been one of your best guys as far as getting downhill and defending the run. So this defense now is half of what it used to be as far as a starting unit after this trade. 
So I got to ask myself, what's Steven Nelson's value? And now what will this defense look like next season? Because it looks like the offense, for the most part, is starting to shore itself up a bit. You got one offensive lineman back as far as getting um, B.J. Finney to come in, as far as, you know, maybe filling an open hole at the very least with Marquise Pouncey retiring. You're hoping for at least finding a left tackle, if not in the draft, maybe in free agency, but there's only a couple out there that might be worth what you're willing to pay. And now there's discussion that Alejandro Villanueva might be back. And I don't know how I feel about that. Honestly, when you look at this line last season, how do you feel better about it now, knowing that it might not have been what you wanted it to be last year? So there's so much that kind of adds up here, and you wonder just how well this trade can work out for them, even if they are able to find their trade partner for Steven Nelson. I'm worried that they don't realize how big of a hit this is going to be. And I understand that Juju bringing him back helps the offense because him and Claypool were lighting the league up whenever the Steelers were actually able to throw the football down the field because a lot of the times they weren't able to do that. It was a lot of screen passes and no run game whatsoever. So you bring Juju back, okay, fine. You don't really have an offensive line that's going your way. You're losing Pouncey. And you still don't have a running back because Connor's gone. So my question is, do you take a cornerback in the draft or do you take a running back in the draft or do you take offensive line in the draft? But there's a hole in three spots now on this team. If there was a hole at wide receiver, the Steelers are really good at finding the guys that they can draft at wide receiver that are going to make an impact. And even if they didn't draft somebody, they still would have – Chase Claypool at wide receiver, which I'd be more than fine with as their number one guy. But now it's going to be Juju and Claypool. Fine. Like, that's cool with me as long as they find a way to address the other problems. And I don't know how they're going to do that because the 24th pick, if Najee Harris is out there, if Caleb Farley is out there, and if a center is out there, what is the best choice for them to make? I still think offensive line is because they don't have an effective run game or Ben being able to throw the football without an effective offensive line. But now with Nelson gone, is Justin Lane really the answer at cornerback now to take over for Steven Nelson? Are the Steelers really not going to see any problems there? So I have to ask myself, what's the most important thing to address? Because this is going to be a huge first draft pick. It may come down to who's on their board and who they think the best guy available is, which really wouldn't shock anybody because we hear that answer the most from Kevin Colbert. When they talk when they talk about who they could pick, usually Kevin Colbert says, we'll look at the best guy available. We'll pick the best player available. But the question is, I think you've got a point. If that collection of guys is on board or on the board at the time, it does make you wonder just who would be the best option right there. If I'm looking at anything, I'm looking at the fact that you probably have a couple of holes right now on your offense that you don't know where to fill, but you also have significant holes on your defense that you might not necessarily know where to fill. Because on the offensive side of it, yes, we talked about B.J. Finney. You need a left tackle. Now, we granted, they signed Zach Banner, which is good, and they have Chooks Okara for it. So are you assuming that Zach Banner is your starting left tackle? Because if you are, then maybe you're looking at center, but if you're assuming that B.J. Finney is your starting center – now maybe you're looking at running back. Maybe that's what changes it. And I think that the moves that they've made so far might give them a slight bit of flexibility, but not a ton. And I think you brought up a good point, because if Steven Nelson is indeed traded, that moves him out, that puts Cameron Sutton at your outside right quarterback across from Joe Hayden on the left side. 
But now you got to figure out who your nickel guy is. Can you draft that nickel corner? Might it be easier to draft a nickel corner knowing that you have Hayton and Sutton on the outside? Could that be an easier situation? Or is it Justin Lane? Is it James Pierre, whom they started to give time to towards the end of the season when, it, when injuries and Joe Hayden's um, positive, positive COVID test became a problem in the last couple games of the season? Is that an option? So all this stuff starts to mesh together, and you're looking at it going, wait a minute, there are too many holes that need to be filled. And I think that's the bigger problem. It might come down to simply, who is the best guy on the board at the time, and does he fill a position of need? But here's the issue. They got positions of need on the offensive line. They got him at tight end. They got him at running back. They may not have them at wide receiver now. That might no longer be an issue. Simply because Deontay Johnson, James Washington, Juju Smith-Schuster, Chase Claypool, Ray Ray McLeod, you got your five as far as receivers go. So you're probably not looking to do anything else there. They might have actually fixed one problem in signing Juju for one more year. But you still have four or five positions on offense that you need to address, plus three or four positions on defense that you need to address. I'm looking inside linebacker at this point because if you have no Vince Williams, are you okay with just Robert Spillane and Devin Bush? Because even if you are, you still need depth there. Because are you sold on Marcus Allen? Are you sold on T. Gray Scales? Are you able to bring back Ulysses Gilbert to third? Even if you are, are you sold on that depth? There's so many different things that they still need to address, and I don't know how they're going to do it unless they're able to trade a Steven Nelson, if they're able to re- restructure a Stephon Tewitt contract to make this work, and that might be the next thing. We still need to figure out how much more money and cap space they can create before they address more problems. So the draft might take care of if we see what happens with the Steven Nelson trade and see if they can free up more room to either, to either bring back guys that they want to keep or sign someone else to free agency that might fill a void. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that the draft is going to be a huge factor in this whole thing. You did bring up a good point about B.J. Finney. They did bring him in at center, and you signed Banner to that contract. So maybe this is pointing towards if Najee Harris is out there, the Steelers are all in and they take him at 24. And I can't, I can't get mad. Like I've heard people get mad about this and go, "Well, they need to address more things in running back." If I can get a star running back out of Alabama who was tearing up the league, who kind of looks like Derrick Henry 2.0, who am I to be upset about that? I have one caveat to that because we're assuming that the results at Alabama would be typical in the NFL. And I have to remind people, Alabama has a better offensive line. And some maybe some NFL teams do. So this is, this is it might this is not fair. be the most fair assessment. And I'd say the same thing with Derrick Henry. I'd, I'd say that same, make that same case. I'd make that same case with Mark Ingram when he came out of Alabama and won a Heisman. Uh, you, we're talking about a really, really good offensive line that's coached by arguably the greatest college football coach of all time, if not the best of his generation right now. So that that's something you look at it because I'm like, look, if I can have Najee Harris's line on the Steelers' line, I might take Najee Harris's line in Alabama right now considering the fact that a handful of these guys are going to be in the draft. <laughs> They're looking to go pro this year. So, you know, it's it's not as simple as looking at his tape and saying, okay, this kid's good. For me, it's as simple as knowing what he has as far as talent, but also asking myself, do you have, excuse me, do you have enough around him to make him successful in light of what you're trying to do? And that's what I'm not really sold on. So if I'm the Steelers, and if I can't address running back in the first round, that's okay. I'm, not, I'm probably not too crazy about it because they just met with Memphis's running back this week. There's also Javante Williams out of North Carolina, whom I really like. 
those are two running backs that I say if they have those guys early day two available, one of those two, I'm happy with that. So if you want to address something else in the first round, whether it's offensive line, whether it's linebacker, maybe even if it's corner, if it's available to you, by all means do it. Like we said, they got a lot of holes they got to plug. So I don't think there's a bad answer in the first round as long as it's a, a position that needs to be filled. If they can, if they can, you know, maybe fill that running back spot in the second round with a day two guy, maybe an early day two guy, I'm totally okay with it. It would be nice to have Najee Harris. I'm more worried about Najee Harris running behind a line that can make space for him. And I know a lot of people would question if this line would be able to make space for him because we're talking B.J. Finney, we're talking Chooks Okrafor, and we're talking Zach Banner. These are three guys who did not get a ton of time playing last season. This, this isn't really the, you know, the same kind of dynamic that we're looking at before that we're used to looking at. So it, it does make you wonder, how sold are you on these guys? Now, granted, Chooks Okrafor started 15 games last season, but that was his first season as a starter. So now we're, now, now we're trying to figure out, are you really sold on Chooks? If you are at right tackle, are you sold at Zach Banner at left tackle? Because Zach Banner didn't play a lot of last season because of an injury. B.J. Finney wasn't even here last season. He was between Seattle and Cincinnati, and then eventually found his way back because Cincinnati cut him after Seattle traded him to Cincinnati. So are you sold on this line to draft a Najee Harris? I don't know if I am. So if they're able to address maybe offensive line or another position of need in the first round and take one of those other guys I talked about in the second round, I'm cool with that too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm cool with them addressing cornerback, offensive line, running back, or even linebacker. I'm cool with any of those because all four of those need some work. Uh, another, another thing I want to take away from this, uh, as we're talking about the uh, news that came out on Friday that Juju Smith-Schuster is coming back to Pittsburgh, Steven Nelson has been told by the team to start seeking out trade offers or he will be cut because they're trying to save some money. Uh, Josh, I take a big thing away from this whole thing that Juju actually lives up to what he was talking about. He tell he said how much he loved being in Pittsburgh and how much he wants to be a Steeler, to continue to be a Steeler. He gets offers from teams like Kansas City, Philadelphia, and Baltimore for more money, and he decides to come back to Pittsburgh. Number one, I think a huge reason why is because of him and Ben. They are very close. And you know that Juju will go to fight for Ben, and Ben will fight for Juju. And so I think with Ben returning, it was a no-brainer for Juju that, hey, Ben's coming back. I would rather play with him than go play for the Ravens or go play for the Chiefs where I'm, you know, if he goes to the Chiefs, he's probably going to be, what, their second or third receiver? I mean, he's not going to be number one. That's still Tyreek Hill. And he's probably not going to get as much touches as Kelsey does. And I don't even know if he factors that in or not. But I just think that his love for Pittsburgh, even though people have given him garbage every year that he's been here, is very evident. And the guy lived up to his word, and he took less money to come back and be a Steeler. And I can't help but commend that. You know what? He's a nicer man than I am. And I I say that with all respect for Juju Smith-Schuster and what he's done so far as a Pittsburgh Steeler. I, I think he's a nicer man than I am. Because if I'm taking into account all the crap that some of the Steelers fans in this area and some of the media in this area have said about him and how they've gone out of their way to make him look like a worse person than he is, if you take all that into account, plus an opportunity to play for a team who's played in the last two Super Bowls, 
with a guy who's won an MVP and literally threw for 50 touchdowns in his first season as a starter and is already on the cusp of being the next great quarterback in this league, and you might have a shot to go back to the Super Bowl next year, you can join the number one team in the AFC with a bullet right out of the gate. I'd jump at that opportunity. If I'm him, I'm jumping to play with Patrick Mahomes. Why would I want to stay here and play with Ben Roethlisberger, who you're probably going to get one more year out of, if you're lucky, in a place where people keep trying to find a way to make you the fall guy, as opposed to going to Kansas City, where you're playing with one of the rising stars, if not the fastest rising star in the league, with a chance to go to a Super Bowl again, and put this ridiculous that you deal with, this ridiculousness that you deal with in Pittsburgh behind your rearview mirror, and maybe win something for a change. So yeah, in this particular aspect, it does make Juju look good because he was willing to take less money to come back to a team that is not better on paper. The, the Steelers are not better than the Chiefs on paper. The Steelers right now aren't better than the Ravens on paper. You can make an argument that the Steelers and the Eagles probably are more close than they are to the Chiefs. So to do that, to make that decision and to come back the way he has, I would commend him for it because if nothing else, you're right. He does... He does appear to he does appear to have kept his word, but at the same time, he sure as hell didn't have to. Yeah, and I think he also didn't want to play for Baltimore. I don't think he wanted to play for the enemy because I'd say this much. I'd say this much, and, and maybe Juju, like I said, maybe he's a nicer guy than me. I grew up a very competitive guy. Being the competitor that I I, I could have been in my younger years. If I'm hearing all the stuff that's being said about me in Pittsburgh and being blamed for all blamed for so much stuff that's not my fault, you have a good way to stick it up some other people's re- rear ends when you get the opportunity to, Going to go to the other team and beat them. <laughs> yeah. Go to Baltimore and be the one that puts them out. Be the one that knocks them out of the division race. Be the one that messes them up for making the playoffs. If Juju Smith-Schuster could deliver that blow, that would be the best revenge. Living well for your rival would be a really good dose of revenge. And I've been here for it. I thought that was great, but that's just me. Uh, I mean, because if you want to turn the petty meter up, that'd be a great way to do it. So, like I said, good on him. Absolutely. So, with Nelson gone, the Steelers save uh, 15.57 – or, I'm sorry. With Nelson gone, the Steelers decide they're going to pay Joe Hayden, and Hayden will have – 15.575 15.575 million salary cap hit with a $7 million salary in 2021. So Nelson's either going to get traded or he's going to get released. And then we're most likely going to see Joe Hayden get extended, which I'm cool with. I'm, I'm cool with it. I figured that keeping both of them might be hard. And if you're going to extend Joe Hayden, that means you're going to probably take a little bit off of his cap hit too. You might save half of what you were going to pay him, if not more. There's another maybe eight and a half, maybe nine that you might save on that cap hit, depending on how much they convert. Maybe that base salary into a signing bonus and push some of it down the road. That might be helpful. Or, or as far as signing an entirely new deal, which might convert some of it and push and kick that can down the road because we know the Steelers are good at that. And it does free you up to make some other moves here as far as maybe filling some spots on the depth chart that are wide open. However, are you sold on Joe Hayden sticking around? I remember, bear in mind, I am the guy who is good for at least one per Steelers game, obligatory, I'm glad Joe Hayden is a Pittsburgh Steelers tweet. I'm also the same guy who is good for at least one Mike Hilton playmaker tweet per week during the Steelers game. But are you sold on Joe Hayden at 32 years old entering this season? 
and then next season he'll be 33. Right after this season, he'll be an unrestricted free agent. But are you going to extend a corner that will be 32 years old this season? And if you do, how long do you extend him? Because when you start getting in the mid-30s for corners, injuries start to shoot up. You wonder if they've lost a step. You, you start to question their effectiveness. And I'm starting to wonder if it makes sense for them to extend Joe Hayden. Just like I would have wondered if it made sense to extend to Stephen Nelson as opposed to trading him or keeping him. Now, the difference is with Nelson, Nelson's 28 years old coming into this season. I'm more surprised, maybe, that they kept Nelson, that they kept Hayden and not Nelson because Nelson's, his, his cap hits a little bit less and he's a little bit younger. So now you're looking at an entirely different dynamic with how you're trying to address this cap situation, first off, but second off, how you're dealing with the depth at the cornerback position. And right now you kept the older option of the two guys on the outside. So that's another thing that I look at and wonder just how well this could turn out for them over time. The only other option would be use some of that cap space that you've saved if you save it by trading or cutting Steven Nelson and either sign the corner to a one-year deal with a lot of high upside or you're going to use it on a high draft pick. And I don't know exactly where that fits given all the other holes that we've talked about. So, yeah, this situation becomes a lot more complicated when you incorporate the fact that Joe Hayden is older than 30 and getting closer to 35 than he is to 30 at this point. All good points and all things that we'll look at into the future and to see if if they do go cornerback in the first round of the draft to see if they have a future cornerback for this team if they do decide to let Hayden go after the end of his contract. So we'll definitely be touching on this a lot more. Again, Friday was whenever it came out that Juju is coming back to the Steelers, and the Steelers also on the same day told Steven Nelson to seek out a trade or you will be cut because they need to save some money. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, the madness of March. It has begun, and our brackets are already hurting. We're going to talk about it coming up next here on the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast Saturday edition as we are talking March Madness. Josh, it's finally back. Last year, we definitely missed it, and the madness has already begun. We are recording this Friday night, so we don't know exactly what's happening in the nightcap of the Friday games, but early to late afternoon, we've already seen some madness. Florida and Virginia Tech went to overtime. Florida squeaked out a win at the very end, and Oral Roberts upsets number two, Ohio State. Let's just say I'm happy the madness is back, but my bracket is not. <laughs> oh my god, we're already we're already getting smashed here with with how the brackets look. It, this is absolutely nuts. I mean, we have some of these games here. I, I'm pretty sure. Now, this is just my experience here. Remember, I worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for a while, so I covered the Razorbacks. I have a very strong affinity, even after my days of leaving Arkansas seven years ago. And they gave me a heart attack against Colgate. I got to admit, they had me nervous against Colgate. And watching that Florida-Virginia Tech game was super exciting. And then here's another one. Watching Oregon State, a 12 seed, knock off number five, Tennessee. That's right. I'm looking at myself going, I didn't trust Tennessee going into this tournament. Why did I pick them to beat Oregon State? I, I'm kind of mad at myself 
for that one. But you look at some of these games now, and you're looking at games like uh, North Texas and Purdue, who were or given Purdue a pretty hard time. Wisconsin, who's up 11 on North Carolina as we're recording this show right now. So there's some of these picks I'm looking at going, this, is, this should not be happening right now. This is way too early for to have problems this early in my bracket. And one of my Elite Eight teams is already dead. Thank you so much, Ohio State. Yep. I don't know why I trusted them so much, but here we are. And you and I are already looking at, you know, what, what could be the beginning of Thanos snapping his fingers on our brackets. So here we go. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about, just let's talk about uh, our brackets real quick. What is your biggest upset that you have that on a game that hasn't happened yet, that on, on a game that happens on Saturday we'll go with? What's your biggest upset? Biggest upset for a game on Saturday. Um, for Saturday, let me look through this here. Uh, Saturday games, it might be there. There's two that you can look at as big Saturday upsets. One of them, I think, uh, same Bonaventure of LSU in an eight-nine matchup. But I don't know if that's really much of an upset. Same effect, eight-nine game. But I have that one written down. Another one I have written down as far as Saturday games, and this is one people might look at me crazy. I got VCU beating Oregon at ten over a seven. And also have UC Santa Barbara, 12 seed, beating the fifth seed Creighton in the West bracket. I so have, maybe that's my biggest one, UC Santa Barbara over Creighton. I have that one, too, because I saw how bad Creighton looked in the Big East Championship against Georgetown, and they couldn't get anything going whatsoever. So I'm thinking that Creighton is going to struggle to a pretty good UC Santa Barbara team who can score a ton. They're not a bad team. The fact that they're a 12 seed – you look at how the season went for them, and they're not a bad team. They're twenty-two and four in the Big West. Oh, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Georgetown. I actually have them over Colorado Saturday too. I do too. It could a, be an, an, another big upset. Twelve over five. Big, I'm a big fan of angry Patrick Ewing at Madison Square Garden getting revenge. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that. So I, w- I wish I could see more angry Patrick Ewing. <laughs> So I'm rolling. I'm rolling hey, with hey, Georgetown all the way to the Sweet Sixteen. Hey, this this might be a coincidence. It might not. It might be fate. But uh, you know what Patrick Ewing's middle name is, Greg? Is it Aloysius? <laughs> it's Aloysius. Is it really Patrick Aloysius Ewing? Yes, get, true story. Get out of Patrick me. Ewing's middle name is Aloysius. That's incredible. True story. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's one of my favorite athlete middle names of all time. I think that might have been the original inspiration as to the one day I actually called you Gregory Aloysius. And I'm like, where did that come from? And probably my brain was programmed to think Patrick Aloysius. And that's probably how it started. Do you think anybody had the guts to call that man Aloysius? Oh, absolutely not. He's too large. (laughs) And no, I I would not take that risk. I saw him play in the 90s in his prime. I'd like to think he's not that far removed from being able to punch me in the face. So, (laughs) nope, I'm good. I am right there with you, my friend. Uh, another upset that I have for Saturday is, uh, where's it at? Mm, well, I think, I think a lot of people think that BYU is going to beat UCLA because UCLA squeaked out that win over Michigan State, and originally I did have UCLA, but I changed it to BYU because UCLA got hurt. One of their top scorers injured his ankle in that in that play-in game with Michigan State, and that concerns me a little bit. So I ended up switching that pick to BYU. Did you do that too? 
See, I already had BYU, okay. and it had nothing to do with UCLA. It had more to do with the fact that I didn't trust Michigan State. Yes. <laughs> and thank you, Michigan State, for confirming my suspicions for not trusting you. Because I figure if, even if UCLA won, maybe BYU could still beat them. If Michigan State won, I expected that BYU to definitely beat them because I don't trust Michigan State. I, I miss the wizard Tom Izzo from previous years. My, my theory of Tom Wizzo – Tom Izzo, excuse me, being a wizard and being head of Slytherin House, uh, no longer holds water because Michigan State is, whew, they are not what they used to be. Well, I don't, so, I don't understand what happened at halftime, but somebody angered Tom Izzo, and then he tried to clap back, and Tom Izzo was not having it. You do not clap back at Tom Izzo. <laughs> you, you, you don't yell at head of Slytherin House. It, just, it never ends well. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, looking ahead now, because I don't want to, I don't want to talk about Friday, unfortunately, because we don't know what's going to happen. But in the future, I'm hoping that whenever people listen to this, my Winthrop pick will be correct over Villanova, because I have Winthrop, yes. I have Winthrop yes. dancing to the Sweet Sixteen. Wow. You have Winthrop getting past Purdue? Yes, I wow. do. Yes, I do. I I don't believe in yeah. Purdue because the Big Ten is so challenging that I think that they beat up on each other so much that when they play somebody else, they just lay an egg. And I could see Purdue lose to Winthrop if Winthrop knocks off Villanova. See, I have Winthrop beating Villanova too, but I have Purdue beating Winthrop. But you, you're making a strong case why I might have chosen wrong here with Winthrop in the Sweet 16. Funny thing is, I have I think I have a, uh, an old co-worker who went to Winthrop. So shout out to Shelby if she's, if she's listening to this podcast. What's she's, a, she's a Winthrop grad. What's your Sweet 16 look like, Josh? My Sweet 16 at the moment, you know, considering the fact that I already lost one of those teams. Um, I had Ohio State as one of them, but they're gone. But also have Baylor, Purdue, Arkansas, Whoopig, of course, uh, Illinois, Oklahoma State, West Virginia, Houston, whom you and I both do not trust, BYU, Alabama. I had BYU knocking off Texas, by the way. Um, BYU, BYU and Alabama, Michigan, Florida State. <laughs> What's that? BYU to knock off Texas, huh? I got BYU knocking off Texas. That is my my big second round my big second round uh, upset. That's a big one. Yeah, and then Michigan, Florida State, uh, USC. I got USC beating Kansas in the second round to get to the Sweet Sixteen, along with Iowa beating VCU and then Gonzaga and Virginia. Wow, I have I have a good bit of those too. I have Gonzaga and Virginia. I have Oregon knocking off Iowa in the second round. So I have. And I, have oh. U- and I have USC beating Kansas. I have USC and Oregon in the Sweet 16. I also have... Yeah, I, have I have USC and Iowa, so we agree with USC beating Kansas. Yes, and I, I don't trust Iowa. If, if, they can lo- if somebody can lock down Garza, I don't think Iowa can win because he's pretty much their whole team, in my opinion. Um, See, you, you say that. You, you say you don't trust Iowa. Guess who I have in the Elite Eight in my matchup of USC and Iowa? I'll give you a hint. It's not Iowa. Yeah, I have USC, USC knocking off Iowa in the Elite Eight. Now, wait a minute. You have uh, – who do you have – do you have Gonzaga not in the Elite Eight? I have Gonzaga beating Virginia. Okay. So that, so that means that um, – that was the Sweet 16 then. So you have Iowa yes, – you, you have Iowa losing to USC in the Sweet 16. And you have Gonzaga winning. Yep, and I have USC in the Elite Eight. Okay. And I have Gonzaga beating Virginia. Yes. I have the same thing there. Uh, I have LSU beating Michigan because I don't trust I don't trust Michigan without Livers. 
I think he's too too big of a player for them, and I just don't think they get enough contribution from the rest of the team without their best guy. And I also have Georgetown knocking off Florida State because if there's one thing I've learned, it's the ACC doesn't show up in the tournament unless it's Virginia winning the whole thing or when Duke wins the whole thing. But more often than not, the ACC lets me down. Or when North Carolina wins the whole thing. I I think people, before Virginia finally won that, that tournament two years ago, I think people were so hung up on the ACC winning so many games. I kept reminding them, there are literally two teams you're hitching your wagon to. And they're two of the four blue bloods in the entire country. Duke and North Carolina. They are the standard bearers for your conference. It is those two teams. And, and finally, Virginia won one. And shout out to Tony Bennett for finally doing it. But for what? Two decades. It was Duke and North Carolina. They were, they were the bell cows for your entire conference. It's funny how some fans in the ACC can talk about the SEC and say, Oh, it's just Alabama and LSU. I'm like, yeah, well, for a time, it was Alabama, LSU, Florida, and Auburn, all taking turns winning national championships in football. Right. Now, does that give you a right if you're a Mississippi State fan to go, SEC? No, absolutely not, because you sound stupid. But <laughs> and you sound no less ridiculous when you're a Pitt fan trying to boast about the ACC, and A, your team didn't make the tournament, and B, it, it was literally the same two teams for a de- for like a decade and a half. So let's, let's slow it down. But, no, to your point, um, Trusting the ACC in this bracket is even harder than it is in any other year. I want to say when it, get, when it goes to the Sweet 16, I have only, what, Florida State, Virginia. Uh, I only have two teams in the Sweet 16 from the ACC, and that is literally Florida State and Virginia. Everybody else, BYU, Bama, West Virginia, Houston, Illinois, Oklahoma State, uh, Michigan, Iowa, USC, Arkansas, Baylor, Purdue. No one else from the ACC other than Florida State and uh, Florida State and Virginia. That's it. I don't trust anybody else from that conference. Yep. So what does that tell? What does it say about me? I don't know. I also have a handful of Big 12 schools. So the Big 12 has let me down in recent years. So it, it could easily be me. They will do that. They will do that. I have... I have Alabama and Texas in the Sweet 16, and then I have a rematch of the SEC Championship in the Elite Eight. I have LSU and Alabama duking wow. for a Final Four spot. And that would be awesome because that game was insane. So sign me up for that. <laughs> the one thing I will admit is I have a ton of chalk, and which leaves me with Michigan and Alabama in the Elite Eight for the chance to go to the Final Four. And I'll probably regret that later because – um, I had that as a, I had that one-two matchup. I had Baylor Ohio State as a one-two matchup in the Elite Eight. Clearly, that was wrong. So did I. Um, I got a one. I got a one-three matchup in the Midwest with Illinois with West Virginia because I have West Virginia beating Houston in the Sweet Sixteen. Because you know we both don't trust Houston. You trust and, West um, Virginia though in the tournament. West Virginia does two things that I like. They play defense, and they have decent enough guards. They got a handful of guards that can play well in the tournament. Defense and guard play usually get you pretty far. And West Virginia's got a couple of guards that they trust. they got a couple of really interesting players, a couple of guys that can shoot, one or two that can drive the lane, and they can play good enough defense to stay in most games. And West Virginia can play you tough enough, and they had a good enough schedule playing in the Big 12 and some of the games they played against where they could play their toughest game and maybe a weaker team might be able to blink. And if there's a team that I think could blink against West Virginia, I think it's Houston. Okay, that's fair. Looking at the uh, South region, my Sweet 16, I told you I have Winthrop going to the Sweet 16, but I have them losing to Baylor. 
if that hits, that's going to be pretty awesome that I got a 12 seed right. But I doubt, I doubt yeah. it's going to happen. Uh, I have Arkansas losing to Ohio State. That's not going to happen. I have. That's what I had to. I have Illinois knocking off Oklahoma State in the Sweet 16, and yes. I have Houston knocking off Syracuse because I think Buddy Bayheim can lead Syracuse past San Diego State and past West Virginia. And yes, I know that Syracuse plays San Diego State. 9.40 p.m. when we are recording this, and maybe I'm going to be way <laughs> off whenever people listen to this on Saturday. But if I'm right, future Greg, high five. <laughs> Who's uh... Yeah, I had, I had San Diego State beating Syracuse and losing to WVU. Okay. So that will so, be... Go ahead. So Syracuse in the uh, Sweet 16 will be interesting. And if Syracuse got to the Sweet 16, it would not stun me at all if they beat Houston. It really wouldn't shock me. That, that has a Houston game written all over it. I just think that Buddy Bayheim is that kind of tournament player that could go off. That They can just win from him. It's like Stephen Curry at Davidson. Everybody else just kind of stood around, and Curry would light up a scoreboard, and they would beat teams that they probably shouldn't beat. And I, for some stupid reason, am trusting Syracuse, after I just said I don't trust ACC teams in this tournament, here I am saying, yeah, the 11 seed. Give me the orange. Like, what is wrong with me? Anyway, don't answer that. Oh, um, moving on to the to the final four. Who's your final four, Josh? I I feel terrible about this because I look at it now and I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? I got mostly chalk. I got Gonzaga, Baylor, and Illinois, three one seeds, and then Alabama, two seed in the final four. And what's your I, national I may be championship? Crazy. What's that? What's your national championship? National championship game, I have Gonzaga at Illinois and Gonzaga beating Illinois in the national championship. Wow. Shout out to Melinda Roeder. We have the same exact one. I have Gonzaga, really? Baylor, Illinois, Bama, and I have Gonzaga beating Illinois 86 to 83 at the buzzer. See, I got 80 to 72 Gonzaga. As the, as the score prediction. I think that so it, two shout-outs to our friend Melinda Rota. I think Illinois and Gonzaga are the best teams in this tournament, and I don't think there's anything wrong I with, agree. with defining who the best teams are and thinking, you know what, if they're the best teams, then why wouldn't I pick them? So that's what I did. I kept I kept picking Alabama in all of my brackets. I'm like, yep, Alabama, ride, ride the tide. They're going to win basketball and football. And then, like – Thursday night at like 2.15 in the morning during night shift, something went off in my brain that was just like, are you really going with Alabama instead of Gonzaga? And for mm -hmm. some reason, it made me redo my bracket, and I put Gonzaga. So if Alabama wins it all, I'm an idiot. If Gonzaga wins it all, thank you, brain, at 2.15 in the morning for saving me. <laughs> If I've learned anything, some of those those late night, early morning epiphanies can really be very beneficial. They're either very beneficial or they're the worst thing you've ever thought of in your entire life. There really is no middle ground. It's either it's either profound a profound eureka moment or it's the dumbest thing you could ever imagine. That's pretty much it. More often than not, it's like you should definitely take this upset, and I go, yeah, you know what, I should, and then I do, and then it doesn't happen. So. This time I yep. went with the chalk. The brain said go chalk, so I went with the brain and I went chalk. All right, we will talk more about these next week because uh, round one and two will be wrapped up and we'll be in Sweet 16 already, which is just insane. And pretty soon it'll be opening day. We are so close. We have two weeks 
to go until opening day, and we're going to talk about the AL Central. We're going to break down the over and unders as we continue to break down over and unders for our Major League Baseball preview. This is the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast. I'm Greg Finley. He's Josh Taylor. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast with Greg Finley and Josh Taylor. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Anchor. Also, follow us on Twitter at Sunday, M-O-R-N, Grind. That's Sunday Morn Grind on Twitter. We cover Pittsburgh sports and national sports. Be sure to tune into the podcast each and every week. Now, back to the podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Morning Grind podcast on a Saturday edition with March Madness kicking off this weekend. We decided to release this a day early because we didn't want it to be too dated with how bad our brackets are looking after Friday and Saturday, right, Josh? We wanted to get it out early that our brackets are terrible going into Saturday. So And they're already they're already terrible. We we've actually achieved that goal. So yeah, there's that. We have with Ohio State. Thank you so much. All right, it's time now for uh, one of my favorite segments that we've been doing, breaking down the over-under for Major League Baseball. We have covered the entire National League, so now it's time to go to the American League, and we're going to start with the Central. And just like majority of the divisions we've broken down, two really good teams and three really not-so-good teams. So we will start with one of the lower teams, the over-under of 68-and-a-half, for the Detroit Tigers. I'm going to take the under, and it's not going to be by too much, but I just don't see this team winning 69 games. I like Spencer Turnbull. He is their ace, but the rest of the rotation is very average. Matt Matt Boyd hasn't showed me much at all. I mean, he's a lefty, but his ERA just skyrockets each season. It seems like the Twins and the White Sox just light this guy up because he's a left-handed pitcher, and they have a bunch of great right-handed batters. Um, they added Jose Urania from the Marlins, but he's just not a very good pitcher in my opinion. He can't he can't find the strike zone. His walks just continue to skyrocket, and he gets shelled pretty bad. Maybe in Detroit he'll find he'll find better success, but he didn't find it in Miami. Miguel Cabrera is just continuing to age. He's still doing Miguel Cabrera things sometimes, but Triple Crown Miguel Cabrera is very much removed, and I don't see him. Uh, leading this team to win more than 69 games. The one guy I really like in this lineup is Candelario. He hit 297 last year with seven home runs. Uh, young talent, I think that he's going to be the next Miguel Cabrera for this team at first base at least because Cabrera's their DH. I don't know how many more years he has left, but Candelario's a nice young guy, and he's pretty good hitter, and he's playing first base for them. So I'm taking the under. How about you? I'm definitely going under. If for no other reason – I think you laid out perfectly as far as the pitching staff and, and how how are they going to keep runs from going on the board. There's only a couple guys I look at, and Spencer Turnbull is one of them. But, you know, there's there's only a handful of guys that you look at as maybe being effective pitchers, and Michael Former is one of them. And he's had so much of a hard time recently between the knee surgery and the elbow surgery. If you can get Michael Former from a couple years ago, you, you might have a better – you know, sense of just what this pitching staff could look like. Because if you get, 
let's say 2018, you know, Michael Fulmer, you might be better off. But the problem is it's just it's so hard to really gauge what you're going to see from him because uh, 2017 Michael Fulmer, I should say, was the guy that was pretty good. He's actually pretty good in 2016 too. So if you can get that guy being at the front of your staff, you probably feel better about it. But the problem is he's the only one that I can really see making that leap. And he's coming off injuries like the past couple seasons. So it becomes a problem. Other than that, there's also the problem of how are they going to score runs? What is this offense going to look like? How are they going to be able to do a lot of it? I don't know how they will. So I got to go under. I'm, I'm thinking more 65-66 games yep. for this team. That's what I'm thinking too. I don't think it'll be by much, but I just don't see them winning 69 games. And I, also, and I also think that Casey Mize, who's one of their top, he's their top pitching prospect, I think that he will probably get shelled more often than not. And that's nothing against him. It's against the Tigers because they're just not a very good team. And I, I would agree with that. And I'm hoping that when he finally makes that move for the Tigers, when his time comes, that maybe it's starting to signal a shift in the dynamic. But for right now, it's not there yet. Agreed. Okay, moving on to the Cleveland Indians. I'm really surprised about this one, Josh. They're getting 81-and-a-half for the over-under. This is a team that traded Francisco Lindor and Cookie Carrasco to the Mets, and they really didn't bring anybody back. They also unloaded Santana, uh, Carlos Santana. He's now with the Royals. They added Eddie Rosario from the Twins, but that's not going to be enough. The pitching rotation, their number three guy is going to be uh, McKenzie. They also have Shane Bieber, who's really good. And they also had the, the police sack kid who's really good. But the offense is gone. They let Lindor go, and they let Carlos Santana go. So I don't know how I'm taking 81 and a half because I don't think this team even thinks that they're going to be winners because they just unloaded their best guys. See, here's the thing. I feel like they can actually do it. I think I might have a little bit more faith in their pitching than you do. And here's why. Because – yeah, there's no Cookie Carrasco. There's no, um, even if you're looking even back further, the, you know, there's there's no, uh, what's his name? Corey Kluber. Like, you remember the Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer, Cookie Carrasco days? Those days are gone. But I like Shane Bieber. I like Zach Lizak. And I like McKenzie. I like all three of these guys. I think they can all be really good. And, you know, having a bullpen that, isn't that fantastic, but still has an Oliver Perez, which is, if anything else, you're looking at it going, you know, just tip your cap just for longevity's sake. <laughs> but, you know, they do have enough guys in the bullpen that could make things close. Um, I'm wondering if we're probably going a little bit more of the unknown as far as the pitching staff, but I think they could be good enough to actually win, you know, eight, you said numbers were 81 and a half? Yep. Yeah, I, I think they can win 82 plus. I think they could be an 82 win team. Um, and a lot of it also is because you mentioned not having Lindor, which is true. But I'll remind people, you still have Brantley Zimmer, whom I think is a pretty good hitter. You still have um, Jose Ramirez, who I think is a really good hitter at third base. I'm a big J-Ram guy. Mm -hmm. So I feel good about that. Uh, Roberto Perez is still there. He's still a really impressive catcher. So I like Perez being there at the catching position. That's fine with me, too. The questions I have are, what are you going to do at first base? Um, who's going to win that second base battle? Is it, in, is it indeed Cesar, Cesar Hernandez? How does all that work? How does all that come together? So I, I do worry about that side, that right side of the infield. The left side of the infield, I feel great about. I met Rosario 
and Jose Ramirez I feel great with. I think they have enough talent in the outfield. Because remember, you have a guy we kind of leave out when we talk about Cleveland, probably because we're just programmed to forget he exists. But Jordan Luplo is still there. He's another guy that can actually hit the ball. So these, these are all things that you look at and say, eh, all right, so this is not, you know, the worst thing ever. So as far as this team being able to score enough runs and keep just enough off the board, I think they'll be able to do it. I will take the over on Cleveland. All right. That's fair. So we finally have a difference for once. <laughs> yeah, been, we, we were agreeing with so many. Yeah, it's been a while. Okay, uh, moving on now. Kansas City Royals, it's 73-and-a-half. I actually like the over on this one. Not by much, but I like them to win like 75 games. They added Santana. They added Ben Attendi. They added Michael A. Taylor. They have Whit Merrifield. They have Jorge Soler. I think who are all... Really good hitters for this team. My big problem is going to be the rotation, but I still think that with that kind of offense and the amount of times that they're going to be playing the Tigers and that they're going to be playing other bad teams in the American League, I mean, granted, they're going to have to play the White Sox a ton and have to play the Twins a ton. I think they can match up with Cleveland okay, and again, I think they can take care of the Tigers. If they can win a couple of series here and there against some AL opponents and they can win some interleague series, I think that they can win 75 games. See, I'm thinking 77. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this. And a lot of this is because of the fact that they've got some younger arms. And some of them may maybe not necessarily young, but as far as just guys who have had opportunities and need to prove that they belong there. I mean, that's a better way to describe it. But I feel the same way you do about the offense. Salvador Perez is still there. In the infield, I st- uh, you mentioned Carlos Santana. I like Alberto Mondesi. Uh, he's a guy that's still young, got a lot of uh, exciting elements to him. And you still have Hunter Dozier. So it's not like they don't have, you know, a lot of of, uh, of versatility there. Same thing with Whit Merrifield. He can play more than one position. So, you know, Whit, Mer- Whit Merrifield is a guy I got to watch, actually, when he was in A with the uh, Northwest Arkansas Naturals, with that A affiliate. He's probably one of the few – that's actually still on their roster that I got to, that I got to see in double A. But Whit Merrifield's one of them. And I was always impressed by his ability to just do the small things right. There's nothing really that exciting about Whit Merrifield on paper. But there's something about the way that he's just able to do the small things. Like, you, you saw him build up and get better and better as the seasons went along. It was kind of unfortunate because, you know, you would have liked to see more of him when you saw this team actually have a chance to really contend. And I think he would have been more of a, more of a contributor early in her earlier in his career, but by the time that time came, Kansas City was on the downward slope when his career was on the upward slope. But I look at 2018 with Merrifield, I'm going, wait, 43 doubles. You know, he hit 304 and he he, he slugged 438 with an 806 OPS. This is a guy can, guy can actually hit. Plus, he stole 45 bases that year. So Whit Merrifield brings a lot to the table as far as a being able to help generate some offense, and b he's got some positional flexibility too. He's been an infielder. He's been an outfielder. He was a proven college baseball player from the University of South Carolina. This is a guy who can actually play. So, he, But he's one of those guys that, since you don't recognize the name, a lot of people tend to overlook him. But I feel like, like you, that outfield has a lot of depth to it, but Merrifield's one of those guys that, let's say you go with Michael Taylor, Soler, and Ben Attendee, or Gerard Dyson in the outfield. You could put Merrifield in the infield and still not miss a beat because he has a lot of versatility. So I, I like the way this lineup looks because 
you got a bunch of guys that can do different things. You got a couple switch hitters, Carlos Santana, uh, Mondes, he's a switch hitter. Uh, Salvador Perez can do some things behind the plate, and he can still hit too. So you have a lot of different elements to this team, and with a guy like Merrifield, who's the same way, and I didn't even mention Andrew Benintendi yet. You know he's my favorite player on this team. Yes. <laughs> Who picked Suey? Andrew Benintendi. Definitely my favorite player on this team. And if he can hit even a fraction as well as he was hitting in Boston when he was really getting his stride going those first couple of years, when he kind of just came out of Arkansas being a Golden Spikes winner, a first-round pick, and just lit the world on fire, if he can be a fraction of that guy, this team's going to look a lot better scoring runs and a lot better than people think. So I will say the over for Kansas City. You say 75. I'm thinking more like 77 wins. Okay. I like it. I think uh, I think we both agree that the Royals are going to take a step in the right direction, as they should. I Agreed. Mean, they, added, they added pieces as if they are trying to be a ball club that is not going to be in the basement of baseball. So I'm, I'm yeah. expecting yeah. that. And I think they understand they still have more room to grow, which is, which is you know, that's realistic. I can, I can respect that. Okay, now, just like what we did with the NL West, we move to the top two teams. I'll start with, <laughs> I'll start with the Twins. They are getting 88 and a half. Uh, I look at this rotation. They added J.A. Happ, and they also added Matt Shoemaker. So now they have Kenta Maeda as the ace. They have Barrios, number two. Michael Pineda as their three. Then Happ as their four, and Shoemaker as their five. I really like that. They added Colome as their closer from the White Sox, who was really good for the White Sox last season. And it was a very shortened season, but the guy had 12 saves with a 0.81 ERA last season. I'm really excited to see what Alex Kirloff can do. The uh, Plum product, who batted 563 with 28 RBIs in 24 games with Plum. They added Andrelton Simmons at shortstop, who's a really good shortstop. And you look at this offense, Josh, Miguel Sano, 13 home runs last year. Josh Donaldson only had six last year, but he got hurt. A healthy Josh Donaldson, you're going to see that skyrocket. And for 162 games, oh, absolutely. Nelson Cruz, in a shortened season, hit 16 home runs last year. Kepler hit nine. Byron Buxton hit 13. This is a guy that was only hitting for contact a couple of years ago, and he hit 13 bombs and a two fifty eight batting average. I think these guys are going to be loaded. They added to their rotation. They got a great closer. As they move Trevor May to the Mets, they get back Alex Colomay from the White Sox. I like the over, but I also think that they're not going to have enough to beat Chicago. And I'll get to that in a little bit later. I like them with the over. You mentioned a lot of good stuff. And this infield is the thing that I like. Adding Andrewson Simmons, I thought that was an amazing move for Minnesota because he's a guy who's really, really, really good defensively. You want to hear some talk about a good defensive shortstop? Go talk to Braves fans about Andrew Ten Simmons like a few years ago. They they loved watching this guy play shortstop. They thought he was that good. I'm glad you mentioned Josh Donaldson. I'm glad you mentioned Miguel Sano. But there's one guy you didn't mention. You didn't mention Jorge Polanco. Full season last year, he had 22 home well, – not last year, but two years ago. He had 22 home runs in his last full season. Jorge Polanco can swing the bat. I, I, I'm bigger on this guy than maybe a lot of people are, but I'm bigger on this infield than maybe a lot of people are. I think it's incredibly talented. So I agree with you. I think they can score some runs. But here's where you and I differ. I like Minnesota with the over. I also like Minnesota to win the division. Mm. I think they've got just enough pitching. I think their bullpen 
that was the thing that they needed the most to get better. That pulled that bullpen had to upgrade. And I think they did that. Out Minnesota to score enough runs because we know they can swing the bat. And we think it, it, as much as we think of this team can, can score home, can score runs because they can put the ball out of the yard. I think that's true. But I think they're going to be slightly better at keeping other teams from scoring. It doesn't have to be a lot. They don't have to be dominant because it's going to score a lot of runs. But they will be able to keep just enough runs off the board to snatch more games than people think and win the division. I like the Twins. Okay. I We both agree on the over. We don't agree on the winner of the division, which moves us now to the White Sox, who are predicted to win the division. They are predicted to win over under 91 and a half. Uh I'm obviously going to take the over because I just said that they're going to win the division, and I'll tell you why. Uh, just like what I talked about with the Twins, I really like the White Sox rotation. They added Lance Lynn, who was really good for the Texas Rangers last season in, in the shortened season. Now, granted, a shortened season really doesn't tell you a ton about these guys, but Lynn was good with the Twins. He was good with the Cardinals. Lynn's been pretty good everywhere he's gone whenever he's not hurt, and so – Move him to Chicago now, I think he'll be fine. You have him, Giolito, and Dallas Keuchel. They added Liam Hendricks from the A's now to be their closer after they after Colome went to the Twins. And just like the Twins, Josh, I love this offense. And just the icing on top of the cake, they got Adam Eaton back, which means that the Nationals gave up Giolito basically for nothing. Because Adam Eaton is back with the White Sox again, which is just hilarious to me. They were like, "Oh yeah, we'll give uh, we'll give you Adam Eaton for oh, I don't know Giolito, who was like no, their number one top prospect at pitcher at the time." And then they're like, "Yeah, we'll take Eaton." And then Eaton got hurt, didn't play the entire season, came back. They keep platooning him. He didn't even play that much for the Nationals, and now he's a White Sox again. I find that pretty funny. Also, offensively, I love Jose Abreu, I love Luis Robert, and I love Eloy Jimenez. These guys are young, and these guys can hit absolute bombs. I love Yoan Mancada, another guy that can hit absolute bombs. Tim Anderson, great leadoff hitter, and I also love Yasmani Grandal as the catcher. I don't see any issues with this lineup. You trot out Grandal, Abreu, Mancada, Anderson, Jimenez, Robert, Eaton, and then Nick Madrigal at second, and Andrew Vaughn is your DH, I think this is going to be a really, really good team with a lot of runs being scored. Yeah, they're going to light it up. I, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with any of it. This team is going to light a lot of teams up, and it's mostly because two through nine, they can all hit. <laughs> and whoever the DH is going to be, if it is indeed Andrew Vaughn, whoever it is on any given day, they're all going to hit. They're all going to light it up. Here's where I'm a little bit skeptical. You mentioned Lucas Giolito, whom we know is a good pitcher. But after that, you have Lance Lynn, who's going to be 33 soon. Um, or excuse me, 34 soon. Dallas Keuchel, who just turned 33. By the way, we we'll picked Suey, Dallas Keuchel. Um, but here's my thing. As much as I like Keuchel and as much as I like Lynn, can they stand up over that period of time? Can they actually take that lion's share of starts, take the ball every fifth day, and get you 30 to 35 starts a season? I ask that question because the last time Dallas Keuchel got you 30-plus starts in a full season was 2018. And the last time he did it before that was 2015. 
So I got questions about that because you're going to really need him to give you 30-plus starts to make that work. Same thing goes with Lance Lynn because last time Lance Lynn gave you 30-plus starts was two seasons ago when he was in Texas. Now, before that, a couple years before that, that year before that when he was in he was between Minnesota and the Yankees, he had 20 starts with Minnesota and 11 with the Yankees. Before that, when he was with St. Louis, he was a 30-start machine for five straight years, 35, 33, 33, 31, 33. But can he get back to what he was? Now, granted, the short season wasn't his fault. Can he still be that guy that gives you 30-plus starts? I don't know if Keiko can. I feel a lot better about Lynn being that guy, but I don't know if Keiko can because the, the, the mileage is not there. But you need both of these guys in addition to having you know, a, a healthy Lucas Giolito. You're going to have to have Lynn and Keiko be horses in the front of this rotation. I'm curious as to whether or not it's possible, which is why I like. And you said the over-under for Chicago was, what was that number again? 91 and a half. I like the 91 and a half. I'm wondering if they're right at 92. Because in my opinion, you're going to have some all-out battles with Minnesota-Chicago. They won't be on the level of Dodgers and Padres. But they will be some really good baseball games. I can see these games coming down to 5-4, 6-5 contests, and he's coming down to whose bullpen's just better in the ninth inning. But I think Chicago could – excuse me, I think Minnesota can make this harder for the White Sox. So I will say the White Sox, I take the over, but just slightly, slightly over, maybe right at 92 wins for the White Sox. And I have Minnesota edging them out the winning division. How many wins for Minnesota then, like 96? I like 95-96 for the Twins. I think their pitching is just going to be that much better with a really good offense. I like Chicago's offense. It just might come down to which team's bullpen can maybe hold off more runs when it comes down to it, especially in Chicago's case in the middle of the game. Can their middle relief hold up to get the ball to their closer? That's what I'm wondering. I love I love this segment. We get to break down these divisions, and then once we get into baseball season – we're going to be invested in all of these games and all these division races because of this kind of segment where it keeps us engaged. You wouldn't catch me watching Kansas City Royals baseball, Josh, but there's a chance that I might now because we're talking about it, and I want to see if I'm right or not. So that's why uh, that's why Josh and I do this. It's because we love baseball, right, Josh? Because we love baseball, Greg. Because okay. we love baseball. We have – Two uh, divisions left to break down, and we have two weeks left until Major League Baseball season kicks off. So we will continue to do that. Uh, I believe we're going to have to do two divisions next week because opening day is in two Thursdays from uh, the 18th when we recorded this. So we'll have to do the American League East and the American League West next week. So we'll break both, okay. we'll break both of those down. And then uh, it'll be time for us to talk about our Pirates preview, and it'll be time to watch baseball. And you know I'm excited. You know Josh is excited. So we'll be uh, continuing to do that, and we'll knock out the final two divisions next week. And as I say that, I think it's time, Josh, for us to define if things are things. How about you? Let's get crazy. All right. You hear the music. It's time to get crazy. It's time for our favorite news headline game, Is This a Thing? Where Josh and I go throughout the week and we see things on social media or on the news or just 
texting each other things that we've seen throughout the week. And we ask ourselves, is this a thing or is this indeed fake news? And I can't do your Donald Trump impression like you do. So I'm not fake even going to Fake try. news. Fake news. We will start with uh, a hilarious thing that I saw on Twitter from uh, KDK TV. Shout out to them. We're Josh Anchors. Uh, hey, I know those people. Uh, Beaver County Family Nudist Park announces plans to reopen for the 2021 season. And Ron Smiley, KDK TV weather uh, anchor, quote tweeted and said, I guess this means the Naked Volleyball Super Bowl will have a home. Josh, <laughs> my question to you, will there be a Naked Volleyball Super Bowl at the Beaver County Family Nudist Park this summer? Hey, here's the thing. When you're at a nudist park, you can still wear masks and still be a nudist. <laughs> Even if you are vaccinated, so um, I'm going to call this a thing. I I can't say I'd be interested in going and checking out what happens, but I'm going to call this a thing. I got to point this out. Um, one of my best friends, Anthony's in Georgia. Um, he actually sent this story to me when they were closing the nudist park down. He was like, "Oh, it's a sad day for Beaver County," and I think I laughed for a good ten minutes. <laughs> so to hear that this nudist park is opening back up, I'm very happy for them. Very happy for the nudists in Beaver County. You deserve to be happy in your nudist park and you play your naked volleyball. So you crazy kids go out there and have a great naked volleyball time. I think this is a thing. <laughs> Could you imagine if you got a phone call and they go, hey, we're looking for an announcer for our nudist park volleyball championship. Would you be interested? <laughs> I would check my schedule. I would indeed check my schedule. I'd, I, if for, if for curiosity alone, and it's not for the reasons people think, because I figure the way I see it, if nothing else, Greg, I can come back home and have a great story to tell you on the show the next time around. Absolutely, you would. <laughs> if nothing else, I, that's one of my fears when it comes to life. If nothing else, make sure it makes for a great story. <laughs> I think I think this is also indeed a thing. And if we do find out that it is a thing, we need to tell Ron Smiley because that was a hilarious tweet. <laughs> I sent that to you. I was like, okay, this legit made me laugh out loud in my booth at work because that was hilarious the way that he worded it. So, uh I guess so, something I got to bring up about Ron Smiley before we get moving here. Ron Smiley, morning meteorologist KDK, uh, one of my coworkers. One thing I want to bring up, Greg, Ron Smiley, Arkansas Razorback fan. I had a feeling that yeah, that was going to leave that there. <laughs> Luke Stewie, that's all I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, you sent me this uh, earlier in the week. Utah State's Marco Anthony. Where's the number 44? Most people pick their favorite number that they liked as a kid or that means something special to them. Uh, apparently, Marco Anthony chose the number 44 because of Wendy's 4-for-4 four four deal. <laughs> Josh, picking your number because it's a good way to save money on food at Wendy's. Is this a thing? See, here's, here's, here's why this is so important to me. Because my senior year of high school, I actually wore number 44 playing baseball. I wish it was for a reason this cool. Like, I wish I would have thought of that. I wish Wendy's 4 for 4 was a thing more than 20 years ago when I was in high school. Because it would have been a great reason to pick 44 as my jersey number. Not only do I believe this is a thing, I'm also mad because I could not do the same thing. 
I wish I had a reason that cool. This is incredible. I love this so much. I wish I could do this. This is so amazing. I wish I would have thought of something like this when I was that young. I, I, I admire this so much. He's my new hero. It is, it is really funny. When you sent me that, it's like, he really picked 44 because it's a good way to save money on Wendy's. <laughs> it, I, it is. I mean, hey, if he is a big four for four guy and that's why he picked 44, it's genius and hilarious. And I really like it. So I'm going to agree with and you. And it's money. And it's money in his pocket in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You don't think Wendy's is going to call him after he gets out of college? I think they might. They should. They should. They better hit him up. They should. Okay, uh, next topic. This is one that I sent you earlier in the week about uh, NFL free agency. Diana Rossini from ESPN tweeted earlier in the week that she spoke to an NFL receiver that she did not name and asked him, why are receivers not going to new teams as quickly as some of these other players that are getting signed by teams? And his response was the wide receiver market is really bad right now. Josh, the wide receiver market being, and I quote, really bad right now. Is this a thing? Yes. Yes, it's a thing. I think this is a thing. And I, I'm going to give you two good reasons as to why, and one of them does not involve Juju Smith-Schuster. These are the, th- the two biggest contracts we've seen so far this offseason for receivers. One of them was three years, $37.5 million for Corey Davis with the Jets. The other one was three years, $34.5 million with Curtis Samuel to Washington. Why do, these two, why do these two contracts stick out? Look at where these two guys went. One went to the Jets, whom, have, whom they have all the cap space and draft picks in the world because they've been bad for a while. And then the other one went to Washington. These are both teams that aren't really that good. Now, granted, yes, Washington won their division and went to the playoffs, but they also play in the NFC East. And the Jets play in the AFC East. But those were your two best uh, contracts for receivers. The next best one was two years, $22 million for Nelson Aguilar to go to New England. And I think you and I hated that one immediately. Yeah, we did. I was like, why Aguilar? So when, <laughs> so when your best contracts are either bad teams – or moves that don't make sense, then yeah, your wide receiver market isn't good. Here's here's another example. Juju Smith-Schuster, A.J. Green, Emmanuel Sanders. All three of these guys got one-year deals for less than $10 million. This wide receiver market is ugly. It's really ugly. Even John Brown going to the, going to the Raiders for one year, $3.7 million. Or Brashad Perriman going from the Jets to Detroit for one year, $3 million. This is not a market where you're making a lot of money. Marvin Jones went from Detroit to the Jaguars for two years, $12.5 million. Receivers are not getting paid this year. They're just not. Even the contracts that you think look good on paper don't look that great because the teams that sign them may not benefit as much because the teams aren't that good. So I got to believe this is a thing. Is this, is this because of the cap pit, do you think? Because that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I think it is. When, getting paid when you lose 15 – Oh, sorry. When you lose fifteen and a half million towards your cap, yeah, I think that is what it is. Yeah, no, no doubt. And and I also think that we're seeing. I mean, AJ Green to the Cardinals. They already have DeAndre Hopkins, 
and they have Larry Fitzgerald, who's really old and is very close to retirement. Why are they bringing in A.J. Green? Like, why is that the move? He did nothing in Cincinnati last year. He literally did nothing. He was on my fantasy team. I will tell you what he did. He did nothing. So <laughs> why is he the move? And you talked about Corey Davis. That is such a Jets move. They go, oh, well, he did okay. And he did okay in Tennessee, so he's definitely going to do good for us. It's the same thing with Eric Decker. It's the same thing that they did with Santonio Holmes. They're going to go there, and they're going to be garbage because that's what happens when you go to the Jets. They spend stupid money for players that they think are great. Look at Le'Veon Bell. And they don't do anything for the Jets. So, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I mean, we have seen – I think Juju going back to the Steelers has been the best move for any team picking up a wide receiver right now. I mean, any of these other contracts, I go, but why? So, yeah, I agree. I think that um, the cap hit really hurts. And I also think that a lot of wide receivers are asking for too much money right now. And teams aren't going to give them it. And so either the receiver's going to hold out or he's going to have to say, okay, I'm going to take less money, but I'm going to actually play football this year. Because wide receivers, there are a lot more of those that are successful in this league than there are almost any other position. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it, absolutely. And it's not like you can find 15 or $16 million under your couch cushions. That That's another thing. That's a significant drop-off. You're talking, you know – eight or 9% of the league's total cap for this season getting taken away. Now, if you believe some of the reports out there, it could be as high as 210 million next year. So re receivers may not get paid this year, but they may clean up next year. So I, I think this is literally a one-year thing. So that's probably why a lot of these are one-year deals. You're going to get your one-year yeah, contract and then you're going to get paid next year. Yeah. And for some of these guys, it might be showing proof. It might be showing proof for AJ Green. It, this might be one of the chances for A.J. Green or my people. Hey, when I'm healthy, I'm pretty damn good. I mean, he's 32 years old coming into this season. He'll be 33 before the season starts. So it's like, you know what? If you're if you're sold on an A.J. Green on a one-year deal for Arizona, this is really, this is really you know, low-risk, high-reward for them. Mm -hmm. But for another guy like a Juju or, or some of these other guys that are still relatively young, these are show-improved times. I mean, for, Joe, for, for Juju to get a one-year, $8 million deal as a show and prove to really clean up next year, I can't argue with it. Even though the market doesn't look good, as rewarding as it probably should be, and there's people probably laughing about it because they think it's related to Juju dancing on TikTok, and I think those people are stupid. But it, it does come down to the market not being friendly to a position that if you, that, where if you play well, you're going to be paid handsomely for it. And they just can't seem to make that work right now. So if you're one of those younger receivers, especially like a Juju, where you have a chance at 25 years old to have a one-year $8 million kind of show-improved contract, you're going to jump at that, and it's going to be a much more advantageous situation for you if you play well and you have a chance to cash in next season. Moving on to the final topic here, and this was one that you sent me. Um, if you want to if you want to chime in here, I, I, exactly what this was about. Mike Trout uh, came out and said that he needed to figure himself out from last season. He was injured, and he only played in 12 games. So I think uh, I think what we're asking is, are we going to see, like, the we're going to see MVP-level Mike Trout this year? Is that the angle we're going with? Yeah, I mean, when, when the headline of the story is, I need to figure myself out, and then you see what the subtitle is, uh, why Angels Mike Trout is finally feeling comfortable again. 
<laughs> you start to wonder, say, wait a minute. My trial feeling comfortable might not be fair. It may not be fair for the rest of the American League. Now, granted, we say that with him being on a team like the Angels, that neither you nor I expect them to really go that far. So, you know, as far as how does this division could finish, I know I'm not sold on their pitching at all. But the thought of Mike Trout being more comfortable in getting back to himself to just come back and remind everybody, hey, I'm the guy that's led the league in OPS, you know, in the three last full seasons and four of the last five. He also led the league in on-base percentage in four of those five last full seasons. So, yeah, Greg, Mike Trout getting back to himself and terrorizing everybody. Is this a thing? (laughs) It's a thing, and if I'm anybody in Major League Baseball, I'm scared right now. It's like Brock Lesnar coming out of the locker room about to just come out to his entrance with the fireworks going off and him punching the air and bouncing around. That's how I feel about Mike Trout saying that he feels like he's himself again. Um, That's frightening. (laughs) If you're any pitcher in Major League Baseball right now, especially in the American League West, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, he's back, and he is angry. (laughs) I have to remind some people, there are people who think Mike Trout's not good, and I look at them like, you're insane. Mike Trout in his career, when he's played a full season, has never finished below fifth in the MVP voting. Think about that. Never finished below fifth. Even in the shortened season last year, he finished exactly fifth in the MVP voting. Outside of one season, 2017, he never finished below second in the MVP voting. 2012, second, behind Miguel Cabrera, Winning the Triple Crown when Trout was the MVP, when Trout was the Rookie of the Year, and probably should have been the MVP if not for Miguel Cabrera hitting the Triple Crown. 2013, second. 2014, won it. 2015, second. 2016, won it. 2018, second. 2019, won it. <laughs> that guy's talking about getting back to that. That's not good. No, it's if not. you're the Angels, you're hoping that's the case. But if you're in the rest of the American League, you better pray to God is not a thing. I am I am wrong, by the way. I don't know what I misread, but Mike Trout played 53 games last year. I don't know what, what I saw that it said 12, but no. He played 53 games last year, and he hit 17 home runs and had 46 runs batted in and had a batting average of 281, and he's saying that he needs to get better. He hit 281. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I need to get better. All right, dude. <laughs> Greg, he slugged 603 and was like, yeah, I need to get back to myself. Right. Do you know why? Because the previous three years, he slugged 645, 628, and 629. Yes. <laughs> and his OPSs were 1083, 1088, and 1071, and all three of them led the league. That's what he wants to get back to. That's You're the American League. You better pray to God that's not a thing. We all know it's going to be. It's Mike Trout. He is the best baseball player we've ever seen. It, especially in this generation, yeah. By the time he's done, he, he will have gone into history as the best player of his generation. Yes. It, it's, it's not even going to be a question. He, he's just – there are people who swear he's not good, and I'm like, you're insane. You, you, first of all, you need to look up his numbers. Second of all, you need to watch him play. Yep. He, he's, he's fantastic. I mean – I've heard people, I've heard the word Joe DiMaggio thrown around when you're talking about Trout. I've heard, you know, 
stronger, more athletic version of uh, Alex Rodriguez when I hear Mike Trout because he's a right-handed hitter. And it's just – it. the thought of those comparisons scare the crap out of me, and they should scare the crap out of anybody facing him on the mound because he, he's just that incredible of a hitter and that incredible of a complete baseball player. Like, there are people who just do not appreciate what he is right now, and I'm telling them, go watch him play and watch what he does and watch how he affects – a team from start to finish. I saw a really good post about Mike, uh, Mike Trout's uh, ones of a replacement over the course of like an entire season and just how it affected the angels and the different things he did during a game to make his ones of a replacement either rise or fall. And it was mind blowing from both the, the, the baseball standpoint and from the number standpoint, uh, there are people who just don't appreciate him. And I look at them like they're insane. I I'm right there with you. And I think that uh, we can come to the conclusion that Mike Trout is going to dominate a 162-game season this year, and his numbers are going to be insane. If he comes out and says that, if he comes out and says, I needed to figure myself out after a shortened COVID season, I think a lot of people could come out and say that. But when you hear Mike Trout say that, that should cause goosebumps down your arms if you are a pitcher in the in the American League. <laughs> okay. That is the end of episode nine. Um, we'll call this one the Brady Anderson episode. How, you like that one? It's oh, a good one. Oh, I like that one. That's amazing. It's a great number. If you look up that's his good. numbers whenever they thought that he was doing steroids compared to when he wasn't, it is hilarious. <laughs> like, oh, my God. You're like, oh, Brady Anderson, very average baseball player. Go look at the one season when he did steroids. It is hilarious how good his numbers were just for that one year. <laughs> there, there's no way. There's no way he did. This dude played, what, 16 years in the majors? <laughs> and there's this one year, the only year he had more than 24 home runs. Oh, wait, he's 50. What? What? How? <laughs> He hit 50, we, he hit 50 we know home how. runs and hit 297. And then the next year, he hit um, – oh, I just lost the home run on here. There it he is. Hit eight, he, he hit 18, 18 the next year. He hit 18. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He played a, in you more, look at that and you go, how? He played in more games that next year too, but he only hit 18 homers. I mean, come on, yeah. dude. Like, you you can't. You just can't. <laughs> This is that this is that Keenan Thompson skit. Well, why? You know why. You know why. How did, why did Brady Anderson hit 50 home runs? You know why. It's 1996. You know why he did it. That is that is just an amazing story. You just go on baseball oh. reference and you want a good laugh. Look at Brady Anderson's 1996 numbers compared to the rest of his career. Are you, oh my are God. you kidding me? That is the steepest bell curve you will ever see in your entire life, math majors. It's a, it's a bell curve that looks like a mountaintop. It's insane. We appreciate you tuning in to Episode 9 of the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast. Uh, once again, we released it on Saturday because of March Madness. And with the Steelers news, we just decided, hey, there's no problem with us releasing this a day early. We're allowed to do it. We make our own rules. That's what we do. So, for Josh Taylor, I'm Greg Finley. Follow us on Twitter at Sunday Morn Grind, M O R N. Follow him on Twitter. It's at Josh Taylor HD. Follow me on Twitter at the GFIN. We'll talk Ladies, to you. Ladies, <laughs> We'll talk to you next week right here on the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast. See ya.